Before we get into the word this morning, why don't you join with me as we pray? God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we have it in front of us. We believe that it's God-inspired and God-breathed, that it's living and it's active, and it's, any sharp, it's, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's like a fire and hammer to our hearts. And in the pages of your word, we find you, Jesus. We find life in that abundantly, and we find the way to eternal life through you. And God, as we read your word today, we ask for incredible wisdom and understanding and revelation to what it means. As we move through the text this morning and unpack it, we ask that not only would we, that you would help us to be sensitive culturally to what was happening back then and the significance of that, but also that you would show us how this applies to our own lives here 2,000 years later in a very different land, in a very different culture. And so God, would you speak to us, Holy Spirit? Would you have your way with us? Would you soften the soil of our hearts, so to speak? We ask that we would be receptive to your word this morning and that your word would produce 30, 60, 100-fold fruit in our hearts. We ask that, that we truly would come away today knowing and hearing from Jesus, the Messiah. So do that, Lord. Use me as your mouthpiece, as a tool in your hands for your glory and your namesake, and we give you all the credit for what you do today. Thank you that today is all about you, and your word is all about you. We love you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just to give us a small recap of where we are in our text, just for some greater understanding. If you were here with us last week, we studied the first six verses of chapter 11. And here's what's happening. Uh, it lines up directly with today. We, we kind of passed the baton from last week straight into our text this morning. What's happening is John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, is currently imprisoned. He's imprisoned for being the herald of the gospel or proclaiming the kingdom of God coming. And uh, Herod at that time has imprisoned him. And while in prison, John has heard much about what Jesus has been doing. He's been hearing the stories of the many miracles and the many signs and wonders that Jesus has performed. He's you know, healed the blind and healed the deaf and he's raised the dead and there's miraculous things that are happening all over Israel and word is getting back to John. John's also hearing the incredible teachings, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the, uh, the Beatitudes, everything uh, between Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 10 that happens, John is hearing about it in prison. And at that time, specifically for John and for Israel, they were awaiting the Messiah. And the Messiah was the one that was going to come and save them. Specifically, in, in their present time back then, it was from Roman oppression and Roman captivity. They were under the rule of Rome. There was much political, social, and financial oppression. And much of Israel, including John the Baptist, was awaiting the Messiah, being Jesus, to come. And when he came, to make everything right to end all this oppression, to restore every wrong, and there to be peace on earth, so to speak. But Jesus came in a very different manner, in a very different way. And John saw the way Jesus came, 
And he aligned it with his expectations of what Jesus should be doing, and he was a little confused. And he had some real concerns, even you could say some doubts of what Jesus was doing and how he was doing it. And so John tells his disciples to go and ask Jesus a, a question. And it was a pretty profound question. We studied it last week. It, was, it said, Jesus, are you the one who was to come? Are you the Messiah? And if you are the Messiah, then what are you doing? Why aren't you doing what I think you're supposed to do? And Jesus doesn't give him a straightforward answer. What he does is he gives him a list of what we call messianic miracles. And those were miracles that, were only, that could only be performed by the Messiah. So it was a way in which, yes, John, I am who you think I am. I am the Messiah for this, that, and the other. He was giving proof to his deity of who he was, that Jesus truly was the Messiah, and he was fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. We pick up the text this morning right as the disciples leave that conversation. So right as, the, right as John's disciples leave that conversation with Jesus, we pick up our text this morning. And what we're going to do this morning, just so you know, is we're going to move through the text verse by verse, really unpacking what is being said, because it's a little tricky to understand. It's a little confusing, or it can be. But the hope is, is that we'll come away with a really potent application for us, even though the culture, the timing was very different, and the significance for uh, Jews back then is very different than us now. But nonetheless, we will discover an incredible application for our own lives. And so read with me what it says in verse 7 here. This, again, this is right after the disciples leave. It says, As these men were going away, John's, the, John's disciples, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. Stop there. Half a verse. We won't go that slow. We'll move a little faster. The reason why Jesus is even bringing anything more up is because there was a crowd of people overhearing the previous discussion. And many were in that crowd because they were not, not only were they maybe believing, but they were thinking maybe Jesus was who he said he was. They were curious and crowds had gathered and they overheard the prophet John the Baptist kind of have these doubting, discouraging questions. And naturally, it would have left a lot of the crowd wondering, shooken up, like, wait, if John the Baptist is asking these questions about Jesus, then like, I have a lot of questions myself. And so what Jesus does is he tries to address some of their concerns. And not only address some of their concerns, but he really does want to give greater evidence or greater proof or remind them of the, the countless prophecies that were fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist. And so Jesus does this, and he uses several illustrations and analogies to do so. And the first part, is, the first section that he addresses is um, verses 7 through 10. So why don't you read that with me? Jesus says to the crowd, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. The one is more than a prophet. This is the one whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of who, excuse me, ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus here is 
describing John the Baptist, and he's doing it by asking them a series of kind of rhetorical questions using a few illustrations. One is a reed shaken by the wind, and one is asking them, hey, did you go out to the wilderness to find someone dressed in fine clothes as if you would find a king in a palace? What he's doing here is he's culturally so. The river reeds in that time were known for their strength. Many products were made with the reeds there. Um, Reeds by nature were not ones to blow in the wind and be weak and frail and tossed this way and that. They were very strong. And so what Jesus is saying here in kind of a rhetorical question is that you may think that John right now was supposed to be this strong prophet that never swayed and that never, you know, jumped back and forth. And you've heard that he has these doubts now or these concerns or these questions that you've just heard. And I want to let you know, no, he has strong convictions. He is, he, he's the forerunner of Christ. And even though he has these questions, he still does believe that he, uh, that, that I am who he said he was. He's a reed that is strong, that is not shaken by the wind. He's He's asking it in a funny way, but that's what he's meaning. He's, when he says, did you go out and find a king dressed in, 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 in robes that you would find in palaces? What he's saying there is, John the Baptist um, did not have fine linen by any means. He was dressed in camel's hair. He ate locusts and honey. Uh, he lived in the wilderness. I don't think he was taking showers. He wasn't bathing other than baptizing people. He wasn't bathing probably. He was not what they would have expected. You know, back then they would have expected religious leaders to be all, you know, dressed in fine linen and live in in nice places and not in the wilderness as John was. Jesus is confronting their doubts here. You may think that John is weak and you may think that John should have looked differently than he does. But why did you go out into the wilderness is what he's saying. But why did you go there? To see a prophet? And this time he doesn't beat around the bush. He says, yes, you did go and see a prophet in the wilderness. The reason you traveled from far to this guy wearing camel's hair in the wilderness baptizing people is because he was proclaiming that the Messiah was coming. He was a prophet. And here's, what we, here's an important note we need to make. In that time of Israel... 2,000 years ago, prophets had kind of all but just stopped being. There was actually like 400 years of silence in the life of Israel. It was as if God just stopped talking, stopped talking through his prophets. And so now that John the Baptist was on the scene, it was a really big deal. Because think about it, no one living on earth in that time specifically Israel, had ever seen a prophet. Their parents hadn't seen a prophet. Their grandparents hadn't seen a prophet. Generations, generations had gone by since there was a prophet in Israel. I mean, it was a really big deal. It was a really big deal that Jesus would say that John was a prophet. And he says he's more than a prophet. He's the greatest of all prophets. And this is because previously, any prophets that we might see in the Old Testament, they were, they were those that prophesied or told the people of an act or a certain act of God that was impending. Or they were, a prophet would warn Israel that they were going wayward or they were being disobedient and they would warn Israel to get back on track. But they were always prophesying about an attribute or an act of God. But none of these prophets 
saw God in the flesh. None of these prophets had seen God come down in the person of Jesus Christ and walked upon earth. You know, see, John wasn't merely warning or prophesying about a certain act of a judgment of God. John was actually prophesying about God in the flesh coming right here now. John was the prophet that was ushering in the kingdom of God on earth. He was the one that looked across the Jordan River and said to the crowds, Behold the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Not to cover up your sin once a year with the, that the high priest does in the temple. No, this is the perfect Lamb of God. The sacrifice that satisfies all our debts. That will once and for all take away, not cover up, the sins of the world. That is what John told the world. That's what John prophesied to the world. And if these crowds were still in doubt, Jesus reminds them in verse 10 of the prophecy that John has fulfilled. Malachi 3.1, which is verse 10. Jesus says, the prophecy is fulfilled in John. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before him. And if, and if you look maybe two steps further, jo- Jesus affirming that John is who he said he was, that John the Baptist is the forerunner of Christ, is telling the crowds that I'm Christ. That's what he's doing without saying it in words. John is the one that came to tell about the Messiah. He's the one that came to usher me in. And so what that means is that I am the Messiah. Our second section, as Jesus goes on in our text this morning, is our verses 11 through 15. It says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. If you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's interesting because what he's doing now, what Jesus is doing now is, in other words, saying, you know, despite how John may look in the wilderness, dirty, camel hair, locust-eaten, honey-eaten guy, Despite that he's in prison, he's helpless, he's powerless, he's under Roman oppression. And despite that John had some discouraging and doubtful questions, look at God's approval of John. The greatest born among women. You know what that means? Exactly what it means. Exactly what it says. Other than Christ himself, John the Baptist is the greatest human that has ever lived. Kind of funny, but you know how people sometimes claim that? Like, I'm the greatest person that's ever lived. John could have said that. Like, hey, I'm, I'm the greatest. God told me. Seriously? Like, yeah, I'm John the Baptist. Oh, okay. Okay, you're the best. Jesus here is affirming who John is despite what John looks like, despite his current circumstances, or despite even the doubts that John raised. In God's eyes, John's still... He, he, God still gives John the greatest honor that God can give. You're the greatest born among 
men. But then what Jesus does is he speaks of this coming kingdom. You know, when Jesus came to earth, what we, call, we, call, we call it that he ushered in the kingdom or the kingdom of God came to earth. It's, an, it's, it's inauguration. When Jesus came to, to earth, it inaugurated the kingdom of God. And in verse 11, he says that even the least in the kingdom of God, even those that believe in this new kingdom, the lowliest social outcasts that have no status, that have no position, that are thought of as society as just the worst, these in the kingdom of heaven are actually greater than anything this world has to offer. He's not taking away the honor that he just gave John, but he's comparing now the kingdom of God to the kingdom or the scale of this world. And you know, we know that from Scripture. God's kingdom is so very different than the world's. We often read about, you know, the least in the kingdom is the greatest, or the first will be last, or the last will be first. But again, the king has come, and he's ushered in a new kingdom. And this new kingdom looks very different than the present one. And he's telling this to these crowds at this time. He goes on in verse 12. He says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. All this means is that the kingdom of God, God's rule and God's reign and God's truth that have come to earth and the people are hearing, have not been really received well. These truths in this kingdom has suffered much violence. There's been much persecution. It's not been openly welcomed by culture and by society. And even this crowd that Jesus is talking to are not openly welcoming the kingdom of God. An example of this would be the first person that declared the coming of the Messiah is now in prison. John the Baptist is in prison for being a herald of this good news, a herald of the coming king or the coming Messiah. Verse 13, Jesus goes on and he says, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. See, everything, everything in the Old Testament was leading up to this moment. Every prophecy from every prophet found in the Old Testament in one way or another was pointing to Jesus was pointing to this very moment when God would come in the flesh to the earth. And if this illustration helps you, every prophecy or prophet prior were like road signs for Israel and for the world. There were road signs that read, don't go this way and don't go that way. God is this way. Obedience to him means this. Don't go off track. God has this for you. And every prophecy from every prophet in the Old Testament was like a road sign leading Israel to God. But John, John was not a road sign pointing to Jesus. He was, he was quite literally the guy that was at the door that ushered in the king of glory to this world. John's the one that opened the door for Jesus, so to speak. It's incredible. Everything in Israel's history, every prophet and every prophecy was leading up to this point. 
And then verse 14, Jesus said something that if you understand the significance of, which I'll tell you in a moment. If you understand the significance of verse 14 for a Jew, then the people in the crowd at that time, would, two things would happen. Heart attack or fall on your face. I mean, just be so blown away by the statement of verse 14. Jesus says, if you're willing to accept it, John the Baptist is Elijah who you've been waiting for. And this is why he said that. In Malachi 4.5, there's a prophecy that Elijah had to come before the Messiah comes. And so every Jew is waiting for, the, for Elijah to come. And even though Jesus was performing all these messianic miracles and all this wonderful, incredible, supernatural stuff was happening, the reason why many Jews did not believe is because they're still waiting for Elijah. Malachi 4, 5 says, Elijah has to come before the Messiah comes. No Elijah, no Messiah. Plain and simple. But then Jesus says, the Elijah you've been waiting for John the Baptist is he. You can think of John the Baptist as the Elijah that you are waiting for. The reason why that's so significant, even at the Passover meal, to this day, traditional Jewish families, through symbolism, open the door for Elijah that evening, symbolizing Elijah's coming before the Messiah can come. Literally, they open the door that evening as a symbolism of Elijah's coming first so that the Messiah can come. And so for Jesus to say this really cleared up, or it should have cleared up, any questions they could have had. Because that was, that was a real problem. Elijah hadn't come, so how could you, Jesus, be the Messiah? And in one sentence, Jesus says, the Elijah you've been waiting for is the person of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has come. And so I am who I say I am. Do you see how profound that is? I think people probably were tripping out. And so verse 15, Jesus says, hey, you guys still listening? Anybody has an ear, let him hear. Because I'm sure there would have been this commotion going on. Did this guy just say that John the Baptist is Elijah? And I mean... Connect the dots real quick. If that's true, you're God. Like in a moment, these people in the crowd that were doubting Jesus, that one sentence might in a moment say, I'm standing in front of God right now. No wonder Jesus said, hey guys, listen up. Listen up. Our last section this morning is section 16 through 19 of our text. And Jesus here addresses specifically humanity's response to these truths. It says this, 16 through 19. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he, he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. 
Jesus is now confronting the sentiment of the crowd and of Israel. And what he's doing via illustration is he's using this illustration of children playing in the marketplaces. And at that time, during joyful events like a wedding, a flute or a pipe would be played and it would be to promote dancing and celebration. But also in that culture, at sorrowful times like funerals, a dirge would be played and it would signify mourning. This is the time to mourn. And what Jesus is doing here is he's comparing the way in which John the Baptist came and he came. See, their messages were one and the same. But the way in which the messages were brought were very different. John the Baptist was more of like a fire brimstone type of preacher. The judgment's coming, you better get right, because if you don't get right, that kind of thing. Repent, repent, repent was John the Baptist. He was like the dirge. He was that mournful, sorrowful, you're in your sins, you're depraved, you need, like that kind of thing. Jesus, though, came as the flute or as the pipe. He came with hope. He came with healing in his wings. He came with salvation and restoration and renewal. And what's being said here is that despite John coming, declaring repentance, or Jesus bringing hope, this wicked and perverse generation didn't respond to either. They didn't respond to either. They didn't respond to when John said this is the Messiah and even the Messiah himself performing all these signs and wonders and teaching these incredible things of the the kingdom of God. Overall, this society did not believe that Jesus is who he said he was to be. He goes even further to describe what the sentiment of John and Jesus was at the time. You know, he goes back and says, you know, you see John in the wilderness not really eating anything, right? John's always fasting. He's eating locusts and honey. And you think he's crazy and demon-possessed is what you think he is. And a lot of people at that time did that. They thought John was just a crazy person in the wilderness. But then Jesus speaks of himself and he says, you see me eating with tax collectors and prostitutes, right? Tax collectors working for Rome, collecting taxes from from the Jews, oppressing the Jews financially, prostitutes, the lowliest of society. You see me eating with these outcasts and all that you think of me is that I'm a glutton and a drunkard. The point is, is that We both come in different ways, John and myself. We've both declared that the kingdom of God is here in different ways. We both are are fulfilling prophecy, but all that you see are these outward things. You're seeing nothing, certainly not the fact that I am who I say I am. They're certainly not believing that Jesus is God. For us... We also are in a crowd, and we've heard what Jesus has just said. I'm going to turn it on us. Okay, okay. You guys good with that? We've heard what Jesus has said. We've seen that it's answered prophecies. We've heard the words of Jesus this morning, and maybe not just this morning. You've heard his, you've seen his word, and you've heard his word. And you hopefully, though, have understood the significance of his claims here today. 
And the obvious question that we need to ask ourselves is, where are we in the crowd? Right? What's our opinion of Jesus? Do we receive him as who he said he was? The Messiah, the Savior, the King. Do we receive him as God or not? Do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world? What's our opinion of him? And I think there's probably three groups of us in this room this morning. One are the, um, those that do believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We're Christians, churchgoers, followers of Christ. We're not the ones that Jesus is referring to in this text this morning. I, I feel like a lot of us, because we're going to church, I know a lot of, I feel like a lot of us are in that category. Right? No, no, I'm not. I do believe that he is who he said he was. The second group of those of you in here are, are those that are unsure. You don't really know if Jesus is who he said he was. You may be curious. You may be wondering. You may be feeling it out. Like there are some things that you see that you're like, wow, I think he might be. But you haven't fully made that decision or you wouldn't call yourself a Christian necessarily. But you're open. You're curious. You're just maybe unsure. The third group in here would be those of you that don't believe. That don't believe that Jesus is God. Don't believe that he's the Messiah, Lord, Savior. And it might be because maybe you just don't care. Maybe there's just too many questions that you can't reconcile. Or maybe it's just that you're jaded. You're just jaded from church, Christians, God, life. Things just don't match up. But whatever category you fall into, so, so we all fall into one of those. Whatever category we fall into this morning in your seats as you sit there listening to me, I truly believe that you have to, for yourself, really examine the life and claims of Jesus and his word, and you have to deal with the question of who Jesus is. You have to deal with that. Because Jesus was not just some moral teacher or some good guy or some figurehead of Christianity or just some rabbi. This guy claimed to be God. He claimed to be God in the flesh. He, came, he claimed to, to, to come and save the world from their sin. He predicted his death. He died. He rose again. And 500 plus witnesses saw this. Eyewitness accounts. He performed countless miracles. The blind saw, the deaf heard, the dead were raised over and over again. I mean, this was not just some moral teacher. You might have heard it said before, Jesus was either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Because it's true. He either was lying his face off, and this was just this deception, or he was just an absolute crazy man. Crazier than anyone has ever existed to, to say the things and do the things he did. Or the only other option is he was Lord. But not, maybe not only today, but throughout your time of hearing about Jesus, you've heard these things. You've heard the gospel, right? You've heard that Jesus came to save us from our sin and that we're sinners in need of a savior. 
And what I will tell you this morning, the word of God says that he is the only way to God. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one, to the life, excuse me. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. There is no other way to get to God. There is no way to get to heaven. It's only through the person of Jesus Christ. And since now you've heard these truths, you're kind of on the hook. This is what I mean by that. Because you know this information now, you can't say you haven't heard it. And honestly, I think the information is too valuable to just brush it to the side. Because the stakes that Jesus spoke about are much more than life and death. They're eternity. Right? We we talk about life and death decisions. Way more of a decision than that. What Jesus said and did is just too important not to deal with. And, and it's on all of us individually to determine what we truly believe about Jesus. And if there is one question, if there's one question that you need to answer in this life, I mean, there's a lot of questions that go unanswered, right? And there's a lot of things about life we question. But if there's one thing that you need to figure out is who Jesus is. Not only that, who Jesus is to you. I'm telling you right now, you might not even understand anything about this world, but you better figure that question out. There's too much at stake. There's too much riding on that. And the truth is, is that we all make a decision of who Jesus is, right? If we we, we say that Jesus is Lord, then that's our decision. If we say that he's not, well, then we just said that he's not. There's no middle ground. There's no, there's no like option C. There's no other way. There's no other roundabout thing. Like, oh wait, no, I didn't say Jesus wasn't God. Well, if you didn't say he was, then you're saying he isn't. So the Bible tells us, you're for me or against me. We either believe or we don't believe. And for those of us in here that are unsure or that don't believe, I want to let you know, like, it's okay to have questions. Like, the Bible, Christianity, this whole God thing is really confusing. And it can be. And it's totally okay to have, like, questions and concerns and the what-ifs. It's not weird or abnormal to question that things don't line up. There's a lot in there. There's a lot going on. What I feel like I need to say and I want to get this out of the way, is that, and I mean this, I'm genuinely so sorry for how most of us Christians have portrayed God to you. Most of the time, unfortunately, we're hypocrites. Our lives don't line up with what our, the words that are coming out of our mouth. We err on the side of Bible bashers and, you know, just like, We err on the side of this holier-than-thou mentality. And what I want to do for those of you that have been jaded and hurt by that, I want to apologize on behalf of us, Christians, that have really pushed you away from the Lord and not pushed you towards him. Please do not, even though we should be image bearers, like as Christians, we should 
portray Jesus in our lives, please don't look at our lives and say, man, if that's what it's about, then I don't want God. Please don't do that this morning. If we were honest, we are just like you. We are sinners that are saved by grace. We've got a lot of issues. We do a lot of things wrong. But please don't let our own lives get in the way of you getting to Jesus. Amen? I think, I hope every Christian can say, yes, please, please, please. That's me. Please forgive me for any time I've done that. But for those of you in this room this morning that fall into the skeptical or disbelieving crowd, the the same crowd, so to speak, that Jesus was speaking to, I am begging with you this morning to dig deep for yourself and really wrestle with the truths that have been presented here. I'm begging you to pick up the word of God, to read the the words that are in this book, the Bible. Like, go for the, the, the book of John. Like, just read that. All the way through. And listen to the claims of Jesus alongside the historical accounts of what he did. And you have to wrestle. You have to. If there's ever a time that you need an answer for who Jesus is, it's now. Because here's the truth. Every one of us that are Christians in this room have had to do this. We ourselves have had to wrestle with who Jesus is. And if we're Christians, we've made that decision. We've read the word. We've heard who God is. We've heard what he's done and what he said. And we've believed. And we have our own story. We call it our testimony or our story of how we believed. But for many of us, it took a long time. I know there's believers in this church that for like decades, they they wrestled with it. For decades, they were skeptical. 50, 60 years into their life, then they accepted Jesus to be who he said he was. You know, for me, when I finally believed, when I I came up, you know, to the front of the church or whatever it was when I was saved, um, I got saved. And the first thing out of my mouth was, please don't, please tell me I don't have to go to church though. That was, I was like 13 years old, and even at 13, I'm like, I don't want my Sunday taken up. I don't, I don't like want to be a Christian. I don't want to go to church. I'll take Jesus, but I don't want Christians. 13! That was my connotation, and I'm sure you guys have the same thing. What's so ironic about that is that God is now calling us to start our own church. I work at a church, right? I mean, obviously, I love the church now, and I get why he did that, but... All I'm saying is we all have a story, we all have a process, but we're all confronted with the question of who is Jesus? And more importantly, who is Jesus to you? For those of you that have more questions and want to talk more, we want to do that. We want to give you a Bible. We want want you to ask questions. We want to give you opportunity to have space or, Lord willing, to make that decision. We want want to give you opportunity to do that. Um, We can do that anytime. That's why we're here as a church. We can do that. Um, But Christians are not off the hook. I'm going to speak to you real quick, and then we will get into our time of worship. As Christians or followers of Christ in this room, all that I just said might not apply to us, right? We've already believed. We do believe that Jesus said who he is. We believe that he is the Son of God. But my question would be then to us, us, would others know that about us? Do others just naturally know by our lifestyle and by how we 
prioritize it and what we do and what we say, would they know that we believe that Jesus is God? We need to assess that. Another question would be is, does our life speak to that truth if you never told me those words? Right, then it comes like your deeds. Do your deeds tell of Christ's lordship in your life? If you believe that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior and your life is to come under that lordship and that rule and it's to look different. The word of God would say, your life is no longer your own. It's now hidden with Christ. We've been crucified with Christ and our life is no longer our own. It's to look like his. It's to be an image bearer of his. Because the truth is, man, the king and his kingdom have come. Jesus proved over and over to this world that he is who he said he was. He died and rose again to save us from our sins. The question that I want to leave you with this morning that I believe that every one of us needs to answer is, who do you say Jesus is? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for your goodness and your grace. And Lord, thank you that you came into this world because you loved us and you desired to be with us. That you died on the cross in our place so that we wouldn't have to, to save us and forgive us from our sins so that we could be made right with the Father. For those of us in this room that have made that decision, I pray that celebration and praise would come from that truth today. And for those of us in here that are unsure or or not believing or still in wonderment, I pray that you would help us to believe. I pray, Lord, that we would see you as the Son of God, as the perfect Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And so, Father, we asked in this time of worship that we would meet with you, that we would praise you, and that we would truly lift you up and sing to you now for being the Messiah, the Savior of the world. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.